Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. I've spoken with many, many manufacturing leaders, both on this podcast and in my daily job over the past few years about different approaches to filling the skilled labor gap. My guest today suggests that a big part of that solution is sitting right in front of us. In fact, right here in our own facilities, it's the current workforce. My conversation today with this ex-Navy SEAL turned manufacturing CEO is all about upskilling the workforce. And as you'll soon hear, he believes that the future of workforce development, training, and upskilling falls not only on the shoulders of the trade schools, but also the employers themselves. This episode is filled with ideas, inspired and influenced by my guest's experience as a U.S. military officer, and my hope is that it can inspire you to put some of these ideas to work inside of your own organization. Let me introduce him. Bill Berrien is owner and CEO of Pindal Global Precision, a veteran-owned contract manufacturer of precision machine components, as well as CEO of Pindal's wholly-owned subsidiary, Liberty Precision Manufacturing, both located in New Berlin, Wisconsin. After graduating from college, Bill served for nine years as a U.S. Navy SEAL officer, where he led units on special operations globally. He's involved in Milwaukee's business community to bolster training and manufacturing skills and the enhancement of the region as a destination for manufacturing business. Bill received his bachelor's from Princeton University and following his service in the Navy, obtained a master's in international affairs from Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C., and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Bill and his family reside in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Bill, welcome to the show. Joe, great to be here. Thank you for uh, taking the time. I'm looking forward. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Well, every time I have somebody from Wisconsin or more specifically Milwaukee on the show, I get a little excited and maybe a little homesick. I grew up in the Milwaukee area and spent my whole adult life in St. Louis. So it's always fun to you know, I probably get back up to Milwaukee, I don't know, at least four times a year, I'd say visiting family and, and stuff. So always nice to see somebody from my hometown. It is. It is. And it's interesting. We've been here uh, 20 years. I'm originally New York City, born and raised, and my wife's L.A. We came here with GE Healthcare. They moved us here from Boston and didn't expect to be here long. GE's known for moving people around, but we found it a total hidden gem. So made decisions through the years to stay. It's a great spot. So I can see why you get a little uh, a little homesick. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It, it really is a great town. It kind of reminds me of Chicago, but like a mini Chicago, you know, right up the lake. And we take a lot of pride in, in Chicago. We think that's our largest suburb. 
So yeah, there you go. That now we're talking. I like yeah, that. There we go. <laughs> I like it. So have the locals converted you into Packers and Bucks and totally. Brewers fans and everything? Okay. Totally. I'm all in, and my go-to drink is a brandy old fashioned. <laughs> so <laughs> there you go. The one drink that anybody out of Wisconsin looks at you like you're crazy when you order at a bar, right? And then right. you have to explain it. Yeah, love it, love it. And when the bartender asks, "You want that sweet or sour?" and uh, you say, "You must be from Wisconsin." There you go. I love it. I love it. Well, anybody listening who's got a, you know, thinks we're crazy right now, just go Google search Brandy Old Fashioned and you'll get the story behind that. So awesome. Well, Bill, I'm excited to do this. I have to ask. It's not every day I get to talk to an ex-Navy SEAL officer. And so before we get into our conversation about manufacturing and upskilling the workforce, which is, I think, where we're going to go with a lot of this conversation today, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your background there. Sure. Going into the Navy and into the SEAL teams, came across at senior college, bumped into a buddy who was a classmate who's trying to go to OCS and then in the SEAL teams. And maybe it was talked him over too many beers or what, but you know, the next day abandoned all my other plans and set on that path. Didn't work out initially, about 18 months of applying and reapplying and just because they didn't need any uh, officers at the time coming through OCS. But it was a great nine years. I mean, I just loved the the culture, the mission, the people, and still keep in touch with a lot of them and uh, active in the Navy SEAL Foundation. And, you know, it's fascinating now being in the advanced manufacturing world, precision, we do contract, as you said, uh, contract machining. I find these parallels between special operations and advanced manufacturing that at the heart, they're both about small, highly cohesive, highly trained teams, enabled by advanced technology, striving to do outsized things, you know, punch above their weight. That speaks to the special operations community, and it speaks to our machinists here. You know, what they can do augmented by this technology is what in the past would have taken companies five times the size to do. So it's really nice, you know, parallels between that military experience, how you develop people training and and impact, which is great. No, I, I love that. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really cool how you've weaved it into the way you've thought about running a manufacturing business. Mm-hmm. And thank you for your service while we're at it. My pleasure. Well, Bill, you and I were talking a few weeks back because we were kind of thinking about what we wanted to do with this conversation about all the great things happening out there right now from a lot of different people to shed light on the technical colleges and expose high school students to manufacturing and their parents to manufacturing and kind of change the perception a bit of, of this space. But at the same time, there are so many people in the manufacturing workforce already, and there's such an opportunity as you've talk to me about to upskill those individuals and look for opportunities for them to advance their careers and kind of move up the chain and do different things. And I think it's a a really important point and a a great topic. So I'd love for you to just kind of tell us more about what you're thinking about on that front. Sure, sure. Just started off, you know, we've got this philosophy or I've got this thesis that Upper Midwest here, you know, we have a manufacturing ecosystem going back 120 years. So, you know, back to Alan Bradley, Harley Davidson, you know, I got a poster right on my wall here from the like 1898 period of Milwaukee feeds and supplies the world. So all this complementary manufacturers, my company machines, but we don't heat, treat, plate, grind, but those folks are within, you know, 15 minutes of us. So you got that, you've got a highly trained and a highly trainable workforce and you augment that 
ecosystem, the people and the, and the, and the manufacturing ecosystem with automation and AI. And I think the path is that we should be the manufacturing powerhouse, the manufacturing floor to the world. And I think that's the opportunity. But I do think sort of as a society, we still live under these three fallacies. Number one, college degree is the sole cradle of human dignity, which I don't think is the case. Number two, what you learn in the first 25 years of life is going to last you for the next 50. And how you learn in the first 25 years of life is how you're going to learn in the next 50. And all three of those are inaccurate. And yet we as a society, just looking at our structure, still seem to believe that. I love the pendulum swinging back into K through 12, industrial arts, revitalizing the technical colleges and all of those elements. But a lot of that does speak to that first 25 years of life and full-time school, student paid, enrolled, hoping that there are opportunities on the other side, school offered not during industry-friendly hours where you can actually be working while you go to school. We still seem to largely believe that given the right skills to people in their first 25 years life, boom, they're off and they're you know good to go. And let's just focus on the first 25. But you know, number one, looking at those fallacies, nothing can be farther from the truth. But number two, if we can figure out as a society how to fill that gap of how we can support people's growth, industry's growth through those people's you know, years 26 through 76, if we can solve that nut, our workforce can be pivoting no matter what technology comes up, automation, AI, increasingly value added. That's the real journey. And you know, so some others and I are given a ton of thought to different ways that we can think differently about upskilling, both the need for it, the way to support industry, because I do think it needs to be industry-led. You know, it can't come out of the ivory tower sort of saying, hey, these are the skills you should be needing. Let's create upskilling programs. No, it needs to be industry-led, industry poll. But frankly, we see the examples of the shared economy these days. We see Uber. We see Airbnb. That shared economy model has a tremendous amount of scalability. And you know, to the extent you want to dive into it, you know, I think applying a shared economy type of a mindset to upskilling, you know, where you're disaggregating the stack of one educational institution owning the curriculum, the facility, the training tools, the instructors, disaggregate that and take a shared economy approach to it. We could really accelerate this and, you know, and I think realize that vision of being the manufacturing floor to the world. So hopefully that sort of laying out, you know, seems like a a vision for the future there. Yeah, I think that's a really nice overview. Are there certain roles, just trying to think about this in a more concrete way, like certain job roles or... I guess, positions within a manufacturing organization that you think are sort of ripe for upskilling? It is different degrees across roles where the skill sets need to or can evolve to match the shifts in technology. But, you know, in sort of direct answer to your question, really, it is all roles. It is all people. And at the heart of it, okay, sure, we're a machining company. We have, you know, a few different technologies, CNC Swiss, multi-axis lathe, multi-axis mill, multi-spindle screw machines. 
we love them all. And there are an abundance of upskilling opportunities to raise the professional level of all of our machinists. You additionally look at quality, quality technicians, quality engineers, that ever-evolving world of metrology, quality management systems, how to de-risk in a very cooperative fashion with with manufacturing, de-risk production. But you also look at industrial maintenance. How do you better use technology that's ever-evolving to better maintain, better repair your complex equipment. You know, but you even look at, you know, office processes, upskilling opportunities to use UiPath, robotic process automation to augment the office team that is might be working with POs, might be working with invoices, things like that. The shipping team, how to use technology there. So that's why I think there's both the upskilling opportunity for the present roles, the present people you have. And then one of the great things about the nature of upskilling is as you provide pathways for individuals on your team to upskill in their current roles or upskill into other roles. You know, we have examples of material handlers who came on board as a material handler and now they're running our CNC Swiss machines. And when someone like that moves from the material handler role over to CNC Swiss machines, that creates an opening on the material handling. We're trying to apply the same same opportunities to the material handler to upskill. But if we as a society can elevate the skills of those 50 years of sort of installed base people living, working in an industry, that almost creates like a sucking sound where you upskill higher at the lower skill levels those become you know in demand and you can pull in all sorts of you know people you know the former incarcerated population stay-at-home parent that wants to get back in the workforce all of that so i think hopefully you see i'm, I'm pretty passionate about the upskilling and i think it can provide a lot of a lot of hope and you know and a lot of opportunity for the country yeah i think you gave some really great examples in there i mean a few things i've talked to people about in manufacturing on this front, you know, obviously almost every conversation I have somehow the issues around labor shortage and having trouble finding frontline workers. One that comes to mind in particular is in the welding space where you have the workforce exiting at a much faster rate than you have new people entering. And there are companies out there like think of Path Robotics, for example, who's in this automated welding space. And they're, now you could train welders to run welding robots, right? Like the skills already there. They understand welding. And now how do you upskill them? So now you're bringing automation together with an existing skill and being able to do things at with less people and at scale in certain applications. Another one is, uh, I don't know if you know Tim Wilborn, TW Controls. You should look him up. But his whole business that he's built has been around training and upskilling electricians and sort of technical training in PLCs. And I know Alan Bradley specific, you mentioned Alan Bradley earlier, but he kind of, I think, has positioned himself or marketed his, himself to businesses to help them train their people. I mean, you're obviously onto something here. And I love that you're talking about this stuff publicly. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And I think there's a technology aspect to the training tools. A good buddy of mine is a CEO of Lab Midwest. They do the distribution of technical training tools throughout the upper Midwest. And you think about welding, you know, they've got this great training tools for welders and aspiring welders. And you talk about 
again, upskilling opportunities. You know, you're a welding shop, maybe you have someone in another role, non-welding. How do you efficiently and effectively bring them into the welding profession? We often try to say, okay, technical colleges, that's your upskilling. Those are the upskilling executors. Honestly, what I found is that often the technical colleges have a mindset of an almost the extension of the first 25 years life mindset that it's going to be, you know, the students coming need to be fill out the FAFSA. They're paying for it themselves. It's full-time school, usually during normal schoolhouse hours. It's not industry friendly. We're seeing some pockets of innovation, but if they're going to be a solution, they got to innovate more. It's got to be shorter, bite-sized pieces of curriculum facilitated or offered around industry-friendly hours. So you can do four hours of training and then get back to the company to both create value and use the skills that you applied, not doing eight weeks of eight hours a day type of instruction. So we've got to see some innovation on that facilitating side. Yeah, all great stuff in there, Bill. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Mary, take it away. Yes. So I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Mary Keough. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations. We meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic, and one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to get better at a manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value. No cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. Oh, and on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where our attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together all week long between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. Coming back around to some of your Navy SEAL experience, and one thing you mentioned to me in our last conversation was that at Pindell, you've modeled professional development for your employees after the way the U.S. military does it, and I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I believe one of the reasons that our military is so effective and frankly so powerful is the strength and professional development of our NCO Corps, so the non-commissioned officers. So E6, E7 through E9, sergeants, uh, petty officers, E4 and, and above, and that whole progression there of a service person's, enlisted service person's professional development. And I don't believe it was always that way. I think when we went to the all-volunteer force in the uh, early 70s, there was a tremendous amount of thought and effort put into professionalizing. But with the military, it's rigorous testing, exams, 
board reviews, senior enlisted academies, pay, recognition, and which is really the strength. And they say once you leave the SEAL teams, you, you spend your rest of your life trying to recreate it. And we're actually trying to, or we have been implementing here at Pindell, a professional development program that models on the military's NCO development. So six levels of machinist, four levels of industrial maintenance, four levels of quality technician. We use tooling you online classes woven into each of those levels, shop floor qualifications and training, and then NIMS credentialing. So National Institute of Metalworking Skills as the credential, apprenticeship-like credential to recognize nationally on a national basis the achievement of certain qualifications and credentials. Yeah. And then, you know, and we have hours set aside for members of the team to do that training to advance their skills. And we'd like to think we're sort of a, an industry leader in applying that military and seal like development over to advanced manufacturing. And it's been fruitful. It gets to the point where, based on the confidence in our professional development program, we have a pretty high willingness to hire for attitude, train for skill. Because as you said at the beginning, it is tough to find skilled workforce that's available. And employment rate is low, industry is hot, all of that. So, you know, the best alternative to finding someone skilled already is to skilling people you already have or that are knocking on your door. It's been pretty powerful that way. Well, if there's anybody listening right now that maybe is skeptical about what you're talking about or may say, well, here's been my experience. My guess is it might be this. And so what would you have to say to somebody who says, when we train our people, they just get poached or they ask for more money? Talk about that. Well, we have a uh, another sort of motto here at Pindell, which is more value created, more value captured. And yes, upskilling, training, as a company, you want the person who you are upskilling, who you are training to create more value through that additional skill acquisition. And you do want to, and you should be paying them more for that additional skill acquisition and demonstration of what the, you know, the increasing value that they can add. So the first comment you know, around, they ask for more. I do think when you do skill up, there should be something that goes with that because in turn, you would want those members of the team then creating more value, being able to work with that additional piece of automation or that different process or through that skill, defect reduction dropping or you know other elements. And then that is worthwhile. The other comment about being poached, the old Richard Branson motto of train people well enough so they can leave, but treat them well enough so they don't want to. There's something to that. So... I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for industry. We're seeing it in the reshoring of supply chains back here. We're seeing it in the accelerating need for production of more technology closer to where it's being designed, which is frankly in the North America. There's that opportunity and business owners got to be skating to that puck and where that puck is going. And, you know, it is, we should be realizing that vision of, becoming that manufacturing powerhouse to the world. And it's going to be through uh, increasingly skilled team members. Yeah. You know, the one ad I would have on this front, I've been running my marketing agency for almost 17 years now. And what I can tell you is that there's so much value in investing in 
our people and helping them move to the next stage in their career. And for some of them, it's with us. And with some of them, it winds up being elsewhere. But to sort of sit back and try to protect our people by not investing in them and not upskilling them, I'd be creating a culture of mediocrity. You'd have people who are unmotivated to do their best work because they're going to feel stuck eventually. And of course, we're going to pay people more as they skill up. They're going to create more value. They're going to be that much more valuable to our company. They're going to be able to do more advanced things. They're going to be able to manage people under them and help skill up others. So I can understand why maybe there would be pushback on this topic. But from my experience, there's no question that investing in your people and figuring out how to help them step up to the next stage in their career is it's just such a no-brainer. That's right. To that point, as as you're growing, that talent that you have inside is so much more of a known quantity than trying to identify, recruit, take a risk on someone who might have that higher skill level, but you know, are they going to, do they know the culture of the team? Do they, a lot of the intangibles that you're going to have a higher level of confidence with the team member that you already have and giving them that extra training. Yeah, totally. 100%. Bill, any examples or success stories of you know, individuals you've, whether at Pindell or at other stages of your career where you've seen upskilling just help both of the person and the organization? Sure, sure. Two examples come to mind, you know, right away. One is, you know, an individual on our Swiss team who originally came to us as a material handler and terrific work ethic, great attention to detail. His personal interests, you know, once he saw the different manufacturing operations, his personal sort of career interests were to move over to the Swiss team. It wasn't automatic. He would find opportunities to spend time with members of the team. He'd also use our professional development program to supplement the professional development he had for a material handler with machining skills. He borrow some of the courses that were on the machinist path, figured out different opportunities, whether it be Saturday mornings, you know, where we usually run some overtime and, and other opportunities. Then the opportunity came up many months down the road to bring him onto the Swiss team. And he has just accelerated in that role. We've got a, I think, a pretty innovative approach. You know, a lot of our equipment can run lights out. It has the fireproofing settings, and we know the capability, the features, and the parts are being made that it, the machines can run lights out. And now that individual is one of the members of our team that comes in periodically over the weekend to reset the machines. And we've got a little incentive program there around a, a guaranteed number of minimum hours, depending on how many machines get reset. You know, and we get extra production, there's extra wage and, and overtime opportunity. It really lifts the boat. So great growth there. And then when, when that person moved out of the material handler role, we were able to hire someone else great into a material handler role. So, you know, it was sort of that, you know, a little bit of that vortex we were talking, upward vortex we were talking about. Another quick example was uh, during COVID, we took advantage of a, I think it's a Workforce Investment Opportunity Act. So it's one of these Workforce Investment Acts went back a few years through in Wisconsin Forward Careers. We applied for this training grant, Forward Careers committed to pay 45% of it, and it was towards 
HAM, computer-aided manufacturing. That's the uh, software that we use for programming our CNC machines. We were able to send this member of the team who was one of the machinists in the, in, on the team to a course, this CAM course, that then let them become a, add that skill of programming. And now they're one of our programmers. A lot of companies, you know, you'll find in our world have like one programmer on the team. We actually have seven because we just think it's part of the machinists, their sort of professional development in their path. So now we don't get bottlenecked by too much flowing through a single programmer. So, you know, just two great examples there. And with each of those, more value created, more value captured. We've committed and we've uh, great examples there of that logic working out. That's great. Appreciate you sharing those. And I'm sure there are many others too, but I, I love just kind of hearing how you've put some of these things into practice and gives good context to our listeners, I think. Great. Love it. Well, Bill, is there anything I did not ask you about today that you'd like to add to our conversation? Joe, just to take a really quick dive into when we talk about applying a shared economy approach to upskilling, I mentioned how the standard go-tos for upskilling, let's say the technical colleges own the full stack of curriculum, facility, training tools, instructor. My thought is applying a shared economy mindset to that. I could envision a future world where we disaggregate that stack and you might have upskilling being executed on a curriculum, maybe that the technical college uh, you know owns. So their intellectual property, they put the thought into what are the specific skills, but that curriculum might be executed at in the facilities of company A with the training tools provided by company B and by an instructor that might come from company C. You know, it might be a senior machinist who is fluent in whatever is being taught, but what you are, you're disaggregating and I think scaling the upskilling that can be offered there. You know, and maybe there's like an administrative overlay of some group, maybe a, a public entity, maybe a public-private entity, something like that. That's, you know, as part of that fee that goes with that shared economy approach to that skill, you know, they're charging a fee for administering it. So what you could end up with in the future is this sort of public-private entity that is both a clearinghouse for providing some transparency to who out there is already offering this training. You know, maybe an OEM has, you know, we use uh, Sugami Swiss machines and they're awesome for training classes for their machines. Maybe it's a clearinghouse to you know, give transparency where are the OEM classes out there in your region? Or where might some other, you know, a tooling vendor be offering classes? So both the clearinghouse as well as a coordinator. So where that training might already exist, maybe they're coordinating that training. Maybe they're the ones putting together this curriculum, this facility, these tools, this instructor. Oh, and it's going to be hosted these two weeks, four hours a day at XYZ company. So I haven't got much traction yet on the idea, so still sort of working on it. But if you think of the scalability, if you think of the number of Uber drivers compared with the number of taxi drivers or the number of Airbnb rooms compared with the number of hotel rooms, I think you can see the stark differences there, the potential of a shared economy approach. And I think we we got pretty creative about it in the upskilling world, 
I think there'd be uh, a lot to make. In fact, we've working with our, uh, our Chamber of Commerce on some of the ideas here. You know, we're thinking about, do we brand it? The Milwaukee model or the Wisconsin way of this sort of different approach to upskilling. So you asked if, uh, if I had anything else. I figured I'd throw that in. I love all that. Bill, have you ever read the book Leveraged Learning by Danny Inney? No. I was trying to find it. There was a quote from that book. I read this probably five years ago, and it aligns very closely with what we were talking about right now. But I'm pulling this from the sort of book description on Amazon. And he says, you know, this is the book that explores a model of education that's not only robust enough for the modern world, it's also affordable for students. It's viable for businesses who long to finally hire the skills that are hard to find, and it's distributed to the experts who are at the cutting edge of their fields rather than being confined to the purely intellectual and theoretical realms of the ivory tower. Gone are the days when education was something that only happened at the start of your career. The name of today's game, both personally and professionally, is to be constantly learning, just enough, just in time, and never stopping. But where can knowledge workers, professionals, and lifelong learners go to find the training and education they need to stay current and thrive? And it goes on to talk about how the responsibility now falls on the people like you, Bill, and your your business, and the ones who are the true experts out there doing the work to teach the workforce, right? And so I think it's just so perfectly aligned with a lot of the things you said today. I love it. Joe, who wrote Leverage Learning? His name's Danny Inney, D-A, well, Danny, and then I-N-Y is how you spell his last name, Leverage Learning. It was, it was a really, really a great book. I actually asked him to be on this podcast a couple of years ago, and he's had taken a completely different shift in his focus, and he's a in-demand author and everything. So I'm, I might come back around to him and see if he'd... During COVID, I learned the power of uh, LinkedIn. So when you post this, I'll uh, share the posting and all that, and we'll tag Danny uh, Inney, and uh, we'll see if he responds. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Awesome. Well, Bill, this was such a great conversation. It was, it was really fun to do this, and I appreciate it. You've kind of shared with our audience. I'm sure that everybody listening right now is happy they did so. So thank you. Well, and Joe, I appreciate you everything you guys are doing, because I think providing a, a very focused and innovative approach to marketing of manufacturing can be as innovative, if not more so than, you know, what we're talking about on the upskilling, because it wasn't traditionally a very sort of sales driven. I think there's that opportunity to think very differently about in a fairly fragmented industry, a lot of competitors out there. So a little bit of the 80-20 rule, you know, if you can be part of the 20% that thinks differently, is there an outsized opportunity to create, to, to capture a greater than 20% opportunity. I think marketing's a uh, a direct path to being able to do that. Well, I happen to agree and I appreciate you saying it. So <laughs> great. Awesome. Well, Bill, how can our listeners get in touch with you? How can they learn more about Pindell? Sure. Pindell Global Precision, www.pindell.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Barry and last name in the, uh, in the podcast. If there's an opportunity to sort of evangelize a little bit more on the upskilling opportunity and how we can encourage society to think differently, you know, would would love to be a part of that because let's get innovative about the second two thirds of working life or of life, you know, hopefully well beyond 75, that 50 years of working life. Yeah, because I think it's a great opportunity for the country. Awesome. Well, thanks again, uh, Bill, for doing this. This was really fun. Joe, real pleasure. Thank you. Appreciate it. 
As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.